Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's podcast, Paul Moreland, the leading expert on demography, joins us to discuss his book, Tomorrow's People. Demography is the study of groups of people, what they do and how they act. It draws from other fields such as anthropology, sociology, history and economics to produce nuanced analysis of how we live. Paul Moreland is an authority on the topic. His books include The Human Tide, How Population Shaped the Modern World, and his new one, Tomorrow's People, The Future of Humanity in 10 Numbers. He joined our host for the discussion, Eric Kaufman, Professor of Politics at Birkbeck College in London, to talk about the book and how our world and its population is in constant flux. Here's Eric with more. Before we get started, I should say that that the, the topic which Paul and I uh, have studied a lot is is known as political demography, which is the politics of population change. How do population shifts affect society and politics, or even the anticipation of population change? How does that affect politics? We'll be collecting your questions throughout, and, and we will address those. Uh, and more in the Q&A. So, Paul, the first question, I guess, is uh, what got you interested in our, uh, at one time, arcane subject of political demography? People are asking me that more these days, so I'm forced to reflect um, autobiographically a little bit. And I think the two things that really interested me in demography and its consequences were, first of all, the fact that I was born and brought up in Wembley which uh, probably has seen faster ethno-demographic change uh, than most parts of the country. I was very early in seeing that. So in my childhood, I saw a very, very rapid change in the nature of the population in Wembley. The second thing that I guess um, interested me is when I got married and I and my contemporaries and family members started to have our own families, uh, noting the very different fertility choices of friends, some of whom had no interest in having children, some of whom for various reasons had six or seven. 
So that kind of piqued my interest. And then I guess um, that I then sort of started to pursue the so what. There are two sides of that question. I suppose three sides. First of all, what what's happening? And then there's what, what lies behind what's happening. And then there's the so what question. And so if we... Uh, I, I want to get to your first book, which, of course, developed out of your PhD, and I, and I have a, a very strong stake in. Um, but what about just looking historically uh, at the role that population has played? Uh, you know, Rodney Stark argues the rise of Christianity has something to do with female converts and their fertility. Uh, so the, this, the, these debates go a long way back. I mean, what is your take on how population has historically shaped the world, which you addressed in The Human Time? Well, I think it always matters. So if you have two societies at war and one suffers a plague, for example, or one for some reason manages to get hold of a new piece of land and grow its population uh, by expanding its agricultural base, that's always mattered. The reason I started my second book, The Human Tide, around the year 1800, though, was until that point, I argue you kind of more or less have a random walk in population. So you have good years and bad years, you know, the seven good years of of the, the, the harvests in Egypt and then the seven bad years. <laughs> Long term, you get a general rise in population as um, technology improves and people's ability to create food improves. But broadly, it only quadrupled between say, the days of Julius Caesar and the days of Queen Victoria, which, I mean, those of you who want to do the math, that's really, really slow to quadruple over like, you know, 17, 1800 years. Um, so although it's really interesting to look at individual demographic events like the Black Death and think about what their implications were, the underlying demography doesn't really follow a very set pattern. But then what happens around the time that Malthus was writing Ironically, because Malthus kind of said that's the way the world is. We slowly improve, improve our productive frontier. We slowly improve the population. And then uh, around that frontier, we have good and bad years, but nothing's really going to change. And what really happened then is we started the demographic transition. And it started in Britain and in Northwest Europe, and then it spread globally. And that really is the story of the human tide. So in Britain, first of all, you have a Heavy fall in, in mortality, actually slight raise in rise in fertility rates, heavy fall in mortality rates. And if you've still got big families, but fewer people are dying and people are living longer, the population expands. And in Britain's case, first mover advantage, it allowed Britain to populate the United States, Canada, uh, Australia, and really provide the kind of institutional basis of those countries, even though other populations then followed. And that that trend then spread across Europe. You see in the late 19th century. Uh, millions of Italians, uh, people in Austria-Hungary. So it kind of spreads south and, and east across Europe and eventually to the whole world. So that's kind of the first thing that changes. And then eventually, as people get more urban, more educated, more wealthy, and, and the technology of contraception improves, people's family sizes decline. And eventually, you get to the low fertility, low mortality phase, where a larger population kind of evens off. And then the interesting thing, and I'm sure we'll come on to talk about, is what next? So the point of the human tide was really to say from that point in 1900, around 1800, start of the 19th century, you start to get a pattern in the demography rather than the random walk. And that, I think, is what makes makes it interesting, particularly to look at the demographic history of the last 200 years. Right. And of course, one of the key points that you draw out and is central to political demography is it's not just the aggregate number of people being born and or dying in the world. It is the unevenness 
of that growth across the surface of the earth, say between nation states, between ethnic groups, and that changes the composition and the relative power balance, perhaps, of different nation states and groups. I mean, what's your the other part, of course, of the human tide was this idea of the anticipation or fear of population growth as a driver, independent from what's actually happening to population growth. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how that sort of stimulated violent conflict uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries? Sure. The classic case is the First World War. So if you look at the period, say, between 1870 and 1914, uh, France, for interesting and, and not fully understood reasons, had a very stable population, big but stable population. It wasn't re didn't really take off in the 19th century. And they looked over the Rhine, particularly after their defeat in the Franco-Prussian War, and they said, oh, the German woman, the Teutonic woman, she's always bearing children. We've lost this, uh, this race. There's something inherently fertile about the Teuton. Um, and of course, it, it was true that, that German, Germany was quick to follow on the UK in its um, transition. It had a very big drop off in, in mortality and a huge population growth at the same time as unification. And so its population did expand very rapidly. But by 1914, its women weren't having that many children. Unlike Britain, it was kind of heading down to a fertility rate of three, whereas in the 1870s, it'd been more like six. So it turned out the Teutonic woman wasn't all that fertile after all. And we can certainly <laughs> see that today with uh, Mutti Merkel and, and many other German women. Um, and then meanwhile, the Germans were looking further east and saying, oh, my goodness, the Slavonic woman, the Slav, she will always keep <laughs> producing. And we're there's this, and the very famous statements of Bettmann Holbech, the uh, Chancellor of Germany, talking about Russia, its military and demographic threat to Germany. And that may well have been decisive in Germany, um, sort of pushing the button in 1914. Um, so uh, that fear of Russian demography and all that fl flowed from it. Um, so I think the lesson there is that nothing is perennial. And, you know, we in, in Britain, we often people of my our generation might still have talked about uh, the Italian mama. And we know that it's, Italy has a very low fertility rate now. Um, we think uh, many people will think of China and India as per, and, and countries like Bangladesh as perennially high fertility. And they're absolutely not. So I think the two takeaways from that are, first of all, that um, it has led to a kind of paranoia. And secondly, a related fact that when you look at your neighbor and you think they are um, perennially more fertile, again, to be a demographic threat, it's worth asking the question, is that really the case? Or is it, in fact, the case that they're just one step behind you in the demographic transition? Right. Yeah. And of course, we could even look within a country like Northern Ireland, which we both looked at quite a bit at the unionist uh, fears of of Catholic growth there being a spur to some of the clampdown, and which which then leads to the conflict. But uh, and there's uh, very little very little difference in the fertility rate of the two communities now. Right, right. Even though, even though, however, I don't know what your your view is. You know, Sinn Fein has obviously come come first in the election there. Belfast has had its first Catholic mayor, and and I don't know what your thoughts are on whether to what extent that is simply demographic momentum playing a role. Of course, there's short-term things happening. Do you have a sense of, of whether demography made a difference to the election there? Well, I wrote an article more or less saying it didn't. And um, uh, the, the headline that was chosen not by me was Sinn Féin has won the demographic race or something along those lines. <laughs> um, look, for sure, if, if Catholic fertility hadn't been higher in the 60s and 70s, if we'd remained at a two-to-one ratio, which was what was sort of 
initially baked into the partition in 22, um, we wouldn't have the political situation we have now. However, what I think is interesting in Northern Ireland is the way that both communities are facing a fraying at the edge. There's a growth of people who don't strongly identify as one or the other. Um, obviously, the rise of the alliance has, has, has helped that. Actually, the pro, the explicitly pro um, Irish unity parties did not do better. I think they got a slightly lower vote at this election than at the last one. So uh, the underlying circumstances have helped Sinn Fein, but actually, this election has more to do with the way that the unionist vote changed. And what I would argue, and what I did actually argue in that article, was that um, because the status quo is unionist. It takes a real Republican majority to move that. And if you've got a growth of these communities who are maybe intermarried or who don't strongly identify, then I think that takes the wind out of the sails of Irish unification, although, of course, Brexit has added into them. And I may have quoted to you a, a, a well-known um, Northern Irish politician who I've got to know a little bit who said to me, um, you know, we'd love a few tens of thousands of Hong Kong Chinese. Because you know that we we need them in the economy, and apart from that, um, they ain't voting for Irish nationalism. So even <laughs> if they voted Alliance, or they didn't vote, or even if they, you know, we end up with a Sinn Fein um, administration, and they quite like it. A lot of people in Scotland vote for the SNP because they like, but don't necessarily want unification. And of course, in Canada, you've seen the same. In Tamil Nadu, we've seen the same. Sometimes you get nationalist parties that are quite successful, but actually, the spur for uh, their movement, the spur in the case of Ireland for uh, Irish unity, has gone. Against which, if you had had continuing high differential Catholic fertility rates, then I think the writing would be in the, on the wall for the union. So demography isn't necessarily destiny, but it can be. Uh, <laughs> I think that sort of gets. Well, it, it's, it's a bit. It's a bit. It's a little bit weak. But I, <laughs> I say it's destiny, but not all of destiny. I mean, the way I put it is that you can't understand history, all the world today, all the future, if you don't get the demographic basics. On the other hand, to think that from the demographic basis basics you can read the future. So if somebody said, here's 1920, you know nothing about history after 1920, but I'll tell you everything you need to know about the demography. You can't then write the history of the world or the future on that basis. So, of course, other things come into play. My argument throughout, though, is that demography is really interesting and it's really important. And the, it's, one, it's one of many uh, lenses, like economics, for example, or like major political movements, political thought. But without, without that lens, I think you're really missing something, whether it's understanding the past or the present or having some grasp on the future. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think a key a key issue is because human populations are not coterminous with um animal populations, uh, because their boundaries can shift to some degree um culturally. Therefore, some of the, the energy of those demographic shifts can be dissipated. I was just going to move on to uh a couple a debate really um, <laughs> which you're probably familiar with. Um, you may be aware that Elon Musk recently tweeted, quote unquote, population collapse is the biggest threat to civilization. 142,000 likes. Jordan Peterson's video, Population Collapse is Coming, 2.7 million views. That's one perspective. Uh, and I want to get to your thoughts on that. But I want to introduce a counter perspective, uh, which is very much obscure compared to Peterson and Musk. Uh, this is from two academics who write. In, a, in 2019, Jason Collins and Lionel Page 
in, a, in an academic journal called Evolution and Human Behavior. They argue that essentially the number of children you have is related to the number of children your parents and grandparents have. So that there is a genetic basis to how many kids that you will have uh, in our modern world. And their argument is essentially that fertility uh, tends to increase uh, people who are from larger families will form a larger and larger share of the population. So people with the genes for higher uh, family size will form a larger, larger share as the people without those are bred out of the population. Um, therefore, the world population is likely to be bigger than we think. Uh, so between those two positions, uh, where do you stand? Well, starting with the first point, um, there will be those who say, how can you say we're running out of people? Africa is, uh, many countries in sub-Saharan Africa have a very high fertility rate. They've got years and years, decades and decades of high population growth baked in. Um, I think the answer there is that those countries have lots of people. Globally, however, the world's population is beginning to slow down significantly. Um, and a large population in Africa won't necessarily sort the problem for Korea or Japan or other parts of the world, including potentially Europe. So it's not people aren't fungible. You can't just move them around. So I think a lack of people in large parts of the world will be a problem, even if Africa still has booming fertility rates. Um, and I talk in in my most recent book about the what I call the infertile crescent. So you can walk all the way from the Straits of Johor in Singapore and Malaysia to the Strait of Gibraltar and walk on countries which own, only on countries which have fertility rates at or below replacement. And it's all moving in one direction. And even within Africa, we know Southern Africa's well ahead of, of the rest of the continent and North Africa in bringing its fertility rate down. There are some countries like Kenya and Ethiopia where it's definitely falling and other countries it's more slow. So I think even though we accept that Africa's got decades of population growth baked in, much of the world it will be a problem. And I don't think that's deniable. And everywhere I go at the moment, I'm seeing stories about shortages of people. We have the in the in, in employment and in in labour at, at all ends of the economy. With regard to the second point um, on uh, oh, just on that point, something I, I often repeat is that when I joined the workforce in 1980, in the 80s, there were two people in their early 20s in Britain for everyone in their early 60s. So people might retire earlier or later or, or study longer, but broadly, entrants were two to one to leavers in the workplace. And that's now evened out. And that's why I think we're feeling this tightness in the labour market. And you 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 actually start noticing um, a shortage of labour all the way through when you can't get someone to work for you in the office or you can't get, I mean, earlier in last year, we had a we, we had petrol tanker drivers Lack, lack of them, there's a lack of nurses. There is a general lack of labour, and that's what happens. You get an ageing aging population, which has its own many challenges, and a shortage of um, um, <coughs> a general shortage of labour. And then, um, in terms of your second question, so um, the, the genetic point, I'm not really qualified to talk about it, but the, the problem with that, I mean, it, it's a really interesting theory. I don't have the genetic knowledge to know if it's true. Um, and I'm sure it will be debated and geneticists will look at it. I think the problem with that is that you and I know that there are communities with fantastically high fertility rates. But actually, there are two problems. The first problem is they're still quite small. So that gene may be quite small, may not be very wide in the population. 
And therefore, it may take a long. We may go through the valley of the shadow of not death, but near death, <laughs> before we come out the other side, when these populations really stuck. Because if they're sort of doubling every thirteen or fifteen years, but they're still very small, it might be two or three hundred years before they can really replace the sort of population we have today. The other thing is they don't always have the kind of liberal values that we would associate with the kind of societies we live in. So um, the kind of societies we live in will change. For example, as you wrote in your book, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? If there is an association of very uh, patriarchal, traditional lifestyles with that high fertility rate, um, then those communities will presumably become more important and the norms of society will change. Whether those groups are actually capable without the rest of us in sustaining a modern society, we'll see. Well, we won't see, but maybe our great-grandchildren will. Exactly. So just a little bit on, on you talked about population aging. and Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your most recent book, Tomorrow's People, and some of the things you address in the book, how, you know, how is it different from the human tide, for example? The human tide looked at this story of the transition, of the demographic transition, which I described earlier, and how it spread across the world. So, really, it's a history of the last two hundred years from a demographic perspective. And when I was writing that, it occurred to me there was a need for a book or, or a gap in the market for a book which said, okay, if population change has driven human history, then it must be driving the world today, and it will drive the future. So. Instead of this book being like the human tide was, a history, essentially, it looks at a, a moment in time, which is now, and it says, what are the big trends going on in the world, and how are they shaping the present, and how are they shaping the future? And I do that in 10 numbers. So broadly, they're all kind of linked. I start off by talking about Peru as an example of massively falling infant mortality rates, very fall, fall very quickly in Peru. But it's Peru is typical of many, many countries where the mortality, infant mortality rate, kids dying within the first year as a percentage, is perhaps where Britain was in the 90s. So you've been quite poor countries, really leaping ahead. Then that's leading to the second thing, which is population explosion, where this happens in, a, in places, particularly in Africa. We're going to end up with Africa by the end of the century. There'll be six or seven Africans to every European. Back in 1950, there were about two to one Europeans to Africans. It will be a different world. People ought to understand that and start thinking about how that will change the world. But then as you get a population explosion, you get a mass urbanization. I might give the example of China, where there are perhaps 10 times as many cities with more than a million people now in China than there were in the whole world on the eve of the First World War. Most of these cities we've never heard of, so massive urbanization. With urbanization comes a fall in the fertility rate. And I give the example of Singapore, one child per woman, each cohort half the size of the last. And again, it's not really a problem for Singapore. Singapore can turn on the taps of immigration, but other, other countries can't necessarily. And will certainly turn on the taps of, of ethnic immigration that would allow it to continue to be a broadly sort of 70 80% Chinese and 20, 30% uh, Malayan Indian country that it is. Um, and then once you've got low uh, low fertility, um, you then start to get an aging population, fewer young children, rising life expectancy. And then I talk about the median age in Catalonia, which in the mid 40s, I argue that that's why we didn't get a civil war in Catalonia when they, uh, they had a referendum and, and voted for independence and didn't get it. I sort of compare that to Sri Lanka, similar scenario, violence kicked off, uh, didn't kick off in Catalonia. They're all too busy sort of sipping their coffees in the sun. <laughs> um, and, and then 
you get very old populations like in Japan and how what sort of economic and social challenges that raises for governments and for societies and for economies. Um, and eventually you get population decline. I give the example of Bulgaria, where the population will roughly halve in the century to 2080. They've got very low fertility. They've had it for a long time. They don't have much immigration. Being a poor country in the EU, they have mass pretty high emigration. So it's a sort of perfect storm for falling population. And then I kind of wrap up with the two things that surround this demographic system. On the one hand, a massive rise in education. I give the example of women in Bangladesh, who are about 90% literate today. When Bangladesh got its independence back in the 70s, it was perhaps 10 or 15% female literacy. Um, so we're having a huge qualitative upgrade of people, even if we are seeing a big slowdown in the growth of numbers. And, and that's true whether you look at literacy at one end or tertiary education at the other end. Um, and then finally, I look at um, the huge growth in food production which has made this all possible and allowed the Malthus thought we were all, would always be on the edge of, we'd always breed out to the edge of what we could, uh, the food production of the world. And it turns out he's been turned on his head. Not only can we now control our fertility, but we actually have fantastically expanded um, food production globally. Well, th thanks, Paul. And I guess, obviously, a, lot, a question that Elon Musk and, and Jordan Peterson were getting at is that whole population aging question, right? And I think it is worth stating that there are people uh, who would say, but there are some mitigating factors to take the sort of skeptical view of that. The skeptical view might say a couple of things. You know, one is Vegard Skierbeck, who's a demographer we both know. Um, and his argument is, for example, that if you take an 80-year-old Scandinavian in memory recall tests, they are roughly equivalent to a 55-year-old in China in terms of a lot of the memory functioning and cognitive functioning. I mean, if that's the case, uh, is it not the case, for example, that you have a sort of higher quality uh, of old population, let's say, in developed countries um, because of education, because of a whole bunch of factors? And also, if you look at Piketty's argument about you know, old people actually aren't dying with no money, they, they are dying with savings. So there's clearly still saving and investment going on despite the older population. Between this and, and dealing with retirement, I mean, Jack Goldstone talks about people will have to sort of retire to, to North Africa, you know, from Europe and things of this nature. I mean, aren't there other, are there not alternative ways of adapting simply to a an older population, which would suggest this may not be uh, the biggest problem, uh, as big a problem as people like Bricker and Ibbertson, for example, in their book Empty Planet, or or Elon Musk really think maybe we'll adapt just fine. What do you think of that? I think in a way it's a bit like the Sinn Fein argument. So so um, there are other factors at play. Uh, but on the other hand, if Sinn Fein, if the Catholic community had grown and grown and grown and carried on growing, demography would have been dominant. Similarly, we can cope with a certain amount of aging because exactly as you say, older people are getting younger in the developed world, and that will happen in the developing world. They've had better diets, they've had better health care, all sorts of, they probably led more cognitively stimulating, stimulating lives. So for a whole set of reasons, there is going to be that upgrade. Then there's still a lot of upgrading to happen in terms of education. Um, our friend David Goodhart talks about kind of peak education. Maybe we've gone as far as we can in the developed world um, in terms of university educating people, but there's lots of parts of the world where we could still be educating people more and getting a lot more from them. So there's a lot more more give, as it were, 
in that. But but nevertheless, that buys you a certain amount. But it, you know, when we've used that up, as it were, if we're still having one or say say at that point we're having one child per per, per woman, and each cohort's still getting smaller, it's only bought you time. It hasn't effectively uh, solved the problem. But it, that mm. certainly makes it less alarming. Maybe that will buy us enough time for the Amish and the Haredim to have enough children to kind of compensate for the lack of offspring of the rest of us. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv well who who i will come to actually but i just want to i want to now detour and, and really talk about you know with political demography it's this unevenness of population growth as different groups different parts of the world are undergoing the demographic transition uh, at different times, leading to a major shift in the composition of population. So this brings in this whole question of ethnic population shifts, which I, you know, I've argued in my last book, White Shift is very much behind a lot of the rise of uh, national populism in the West. Um, two quotes. We have an article today from Claire Foges in the Times uh, that says, um, essentially, last year, the UK admitted just over a million people uh, a million people were offered visas to live in the UK. Uh, it has been estimated that to build enough houses to accommodate the expected 6 million increase in population over the next 20 years, we would need to throw up an average of 2,300 houses per week, and so on and so forth. You know the argument. Against this, we have David Aronovich in his review of your book saying, well, a medium-term answer to aging and population decline is immigration from higher fertility regions. Um, and essentially arguing that, well, uh, we just have to manage assimilation, but hey, immigration is the solution. Uh, between those two positions, uh, what is your view of this? My view is it's a choice that countries have to make, um, and that's a choice that I bring out in the book and I've talked about elsewhere. Uh, people can keep on having children and have uh, keep on having the kind of ethnic balance broadly that they have in their countries at the moment without mass immigration. And keep their economies on uh, on track, um, but to do that, they do have to have lots of kids. I mean, at least replacement, at least two or three. Um, if they don't do that, then they have a choice. If they won't have the sorts of sizes of families that will create the workforces, that will drive the tankers and fill the hospitals and provide people for the nursing homes, then they're either going to have to have immigration, or they're going to have to find ways of doing without, which in the long term may mean the rise of the robots. But as we know, at the moment, the robots can't do lots and lots of things, even as basic as sort of gathering bins and, you know, garbage <laughs> collecting. 
So there's an awful, you know, again, they may come to the rescue like the Amish in, uh, you know, 100 or... And again, it's not my area of expertise to say when that AI is going to deliver. But if people won't have families of a reasonable size, then societies will be faced with the choice of these societies that have got the luxury of being able to attract immigrants. Um, of course, uh, some countries aren't rich enough to attract immigrants. They don't have a culture like, you know, for example, China and, 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 and Japan may or may not want immigrants, but Chinese and Japanese are not spoken widely in the countries which have a high excess population that could come. Um, so whether they want them or not, it may not be that easy to attract people. Um, so, so it, you know, I think it, it, it really is about the choices that countries have. So rather than prescribing one thing or another, um, and I know David Aronovich thinks I did in my book, I'm really trying <laughs> just to say we should make informed choices based on the information and the data. And, you know, we shouldn't allow, you know, we should, if, if, if there are very anti-family, anti-natalist people, we should point out what that means for them. But equally, if there are those on the far right that start talking about replacement and so on, we should draw out very clearly that immigration is not some dark conspiracy. It is basically a consequence of 50 years in this country of sub-replacement fertility and nevertheless wanting people to be around to do the jobs we need people to do. Okay, well, what I want to do now is shift into talking about another of our favorite subjects, religiosity and, and fertility, which just goes, you know, I, 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 as you said, wrote a book called Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth. Uh, one of the theses of that book was that you had the rise uh, of world-denying religious sects like the ultra-Orthodox Jews, the Amish, etc. Uh, the ultra-Orthodox have six to seven kids. The Amish have maybe five kids or something. Uh, they also lose very few to the mainstream of society because being part of these communities is not just about going somewhere for a few hours on a Sunday or a Saturday. Um, are we looking at a, at a global future, a, a sort of population bottleneck in which sub-replacement fertility societies are more or less weeded out and replaced ultimately by uh, very devout societies? Because actually regularly practicing, even, uh, you know, Christians or Catholics uh, who are not particularly fundamentalist, even regular practicing Christians have about a replacement fertility. So are we not looking at a future for the planet that is essentially religious? I think the answer is we don't know, because one thing we don't know is how society will change and therefore whether these, these subgroups will manage to continue to keep their people within the fold. But one analogy I've thought of, and maybe we've discussed in the past, is secular urban societies as being a bit like big cities used to be in the pre-modern age. So in the pre-modern, pre by pre-modern, pre-demographically modern age, I mean before the 19th century, somewhere like London sucked in the populations of the rural areas. London has had relatively low fertility rates. London was a high mortality place. It was actually much healthier to be in the countryside in those days. Um, cities were pretty unhealthy, but it drew people in, and the rest of the world, the rest of the country, sort of pumped people into London. It was a kind of population sink. And you, one possible scenario is that these communities do continue to exist, um, but that in a way they pump people out, um, and those people man the secular society and do the jobs that a lot of those people don't want to do, don't want to have the education to do. So that's one possible model. 
I mean, for the religious to inherit the earth, truly to inherit the earth, what is required, as you know, is first of all, a persistence of this very high fertility. We don't really see signs of it coming down yet, I think, among the Hutterites or the Amish or the Haredim, although we have seen it come down a bit among the Mormons who are anywhere a bit different because they are more enthusiastic to bring people in as well. So the first thing is you would need that to continue. And for generations and generations, and we don't really know whether it will continue for another couple of generations. And the other thing is, as society changes radically, they will still need to be able to retain their people. And again, you know, we can't imagine in 50 or 100 years' time what the world will be like. Um, but I think what by studying demography, we can at least ask these questions and start looking around and start debating them and realise that uh, on the answers to these questions hinges the future of humanity. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and it's fascinating. I mean, I uh, we could, there were so many other things. I, I We've got about four minutes left, and I, I'm trying to think what would be best to address. I mean, one thing we could talk about since we have a, um, a conflict in Ukraine is this whole Democrat, well, what's what's known as the geriatric peace hypothesis of Haas, uh, who, who argues essentially that in an older world, we'll have fewer wars. Because historically, uh, you know, it was population overspill, excess sons that drove a, a lot of expansionist conflict. To what extent do you think the Russia-Ukraine conflict between two low fertility powers, uh, it, does that represent any sort of a a refutation of Haas's argument, or do you think it doesn't really, uh, you know, it's just the exception that proves the rule? Well, I broadly agreed with Haas's argument. And of course, my book came out making this, among other arguments, just at the time that uh, Putin decided to invade Ukraine. Uh, the only redeeming feature, however, is that at least my book turned out to be a nice Ukrainian blue and yellow <laughs> colour. Um, I feel, I think... Uh, it is the exception, and I don't think it's the only exception, but it doesn't one conflict. I don't think Hass or anyone else has argued that things like this can't happen, but one conflict doesn't prove or disprove a rule. And there is no doubt, notwithstanding what's happening in Russia and Ukraine, that the really big conflicts in terms of loss of life in the last 20, 30 years have been in countries like Libya and Syria and Yemen, where there have been large numbers of young men, very large numbers relative to the size of those populations. And equally, if Russia and Ukraine had had children, you know, six or seven offspring in the last uh, 20 or 30 years, I think the conflict there would have, have a lot more flammable material. That doesn't mean it's about to die out, and I know it's been rumbling away in Donbass and Luhansk for quite a long time. But I think the lack of... of uh, sort of endless supply of angry young men in this conflict will have an impact on it. And I do think you have to look at, at the round. I mean, being in Europe, we focus on this conflict very much. and It's very important. And the loss of life has been very high. But we kind of lose track of conflicts where the loss of life has been much higher, like the Democratic Republic of Congo or Yemen, and we're just a bit less aware of those young societies where actually there is a lot more war going on. So it is an exception, but it's, it's not such a big exception as our perspective would lead us to believe sitting in Europe as we do. Right, absolutely. And you just have to look at the casualties in Syria versus versus Ukraine. The numbers are 
pretty disproportionate, and and that goes. Yeah, it's going on saying. a lot longer, of course, in Syria. Yeah. One very last question, actually, just on this egoism point about why people have birth, uh, for you know have children. I mean, what explains the very low East Asian? You may have seen that Economist graph, the very low East Asian fertility. And I should say, in, even in Canada, East those of East Asian descent have the lowest fertility. What what do you think explains that? Look, because these are ostensibly quite collectivistic societies. Yeah. Well, it's very hard to know. I mean, generally they're low because they have the features we associate with low fertility rates. So educated people, urban, high incomes. And there's a correlation in East Asia as elsewhere between high income and, and low fertility. But there is an interesting question. In some ways, it ties into the question that, that we've discussed recently about about Africa and whether sub-Saharan Africa is an exception, why fertility rates in large parts of it are not falling as rapidly as they might have. One theory for why they aren't falling in Africa, which could possibly give some explanatory force to what's happening in East Asia, is the following, that in Africa, with the history of slavery um, and the sheer size of the continent, there's not a history of land constraint. So they, people did not live on the Malthusian frontier. And for much of history, they were constantly needing more people, wanting more people, and benefiting economically from those extra people. Whereas no part of the world has been more historically overcrowded, full of people, than China uh, and other parts of Southeast Asia. And infanticide uh, was very common in China in the as late as the 20s, probably, and Japan throughout history. It's not very well documented, but people have done research. And in these societies, they were living at the edge Again, it's debatable, but broadly, for much of history, they were living at the edge of Malthusian constraints. So maybe East Asia is inherently a, I won't call it antenatal uh, culture, but there may be something that's deeply embedded in the culture in East Asia, in Africa, in opposite ways, because of a kind of contrary position relative to the kind of Malthusian model. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay, so what I we've now sort of reached the end of our discussion. I want to move into the the Q and A. Just to remind the audience, uh, please tweet along at the hashtag hash uh, lower lowercase iq uh, squared. Um, so yeah, you can ask a question as I said, pressing the ask question button under the video screen, um, and if you want to put your name in there, just type it in and press send. So I'm going to uh, head over to the questions now and. The first question here uh, is, um, well, at what age, and this comes from Lou, who asks, at what age do you think people in the West should retire? Well, I wish I knew at what age I should retire. I'm certainly not <laughs> uh, in the business of giving uh, advice. So I think, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question because as, um, as we get fewer people into the workforce, there is more demand for people. And uh, we've actually had this kind of big, exit from the workforce of older people, people in their 50s and 60s. Um, so from if I took the point of view of a demographer or an economist, I would say, come on, we're, we're healthier, we're younger than people of 50 or 60 of a previous generation. Uh, we've had good educations. Um, the, work, the, the workforce need that, you know, we're needed in the workforce. Um, we've got more years ahead of us of um, life. And to retire at the traditional ages really doesn't make sense. I think I talk in the book of some interesting encounters I had with people who were working very to a very, very old age. Um, so I went to a concert and I heard uh, a 90-year-old conductor um, 
do an amazing job at the proms in in 2017 or 18. I can't remember which it was. Um, I bumped into a famous artist in uh, a queue in the airport, and I I met a, a retired philosopher and MP. Uh, was that was Brian McGee at the opera, and uh, he was still writing, but really interesting books actually, well into his 80s until a year or two before he died. And then I give the example of someone who had to work in a in a uh, Walmart or something in America, not particularly happy about. It. So I don't think there's any one big answer, and the 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 the, the number is 73 or 62. But I think it is true. We've got we've got better health. We've got um, more more years ahead of us. And it, it, is, it is a real cost to society if we just give up and probably a, a cost to us individually because we know that uh, doing nothing isn't very good for you. OK, and we have another a question here, which is more about some of the ecological constraints that wouldn't it be a good thing for the population of the world to decrease um, as that would be better for our long term survival in terms of coping with climate change and so on. Well, I think if you look at the history of the world the last few hundred years, what we've seen is a fantastic rise in the population, totally unprecedented. But now we're seeing a really, really rapid slowdown in that rise. So it's gone from 2% a year to 1% a year since the 70s. By the end of the century, it will probably go to about zero. Uh, meanwhile, our technology does mean that the carrying capacity of the world is growing and growing. So all sorts of technologies like wind power and solar power mean that we can actually support more people in the world. Um, personally, I think, and this won't necessarily make me very popular with the environmentalists, I think the world can support the kind of population it has today and that we'll probably all be best off for the time being with modest population growth, the sort of population growth you get if people are having two or three children. I think um, it would be far better for the world if that were more evenly spread. So if more people were having children in East Asia, for example, they weren't going to hit this terrible barrier of falling fertility rates and uh, aging populations and declining populations. Um, and certainly in Africa, although I admire uh, their pronatalism, some moderation of that of those fertility rates would be good. So an evening out across the world and a settling down at two or three um, I think we could probably support it. The trouble with the, oh, it would be better if the world had half the population, is that getting there is going to, you're going to go through a period of population decline and aging. And for those who say we should have a smaller population and we should all have fewer children or no children, please don't expect someone to be there to take you to your hospital appointment or a nurse to, to greet you and look after you or a doctor, or a, a, a someone to deliver the petrol to the petrol station. In other words, if that's what you believe, that's fine. But understand what the consequences are until we have the rise of the robots in terms of a lack of labour and, and how that will affect our everyday lives as population ages and begins to shrink. Thanks, Paul. And, and we have a, a question, another question here from Carrie, um, who says, thank you for the discussion. Do you think there's a danger that some Western populations will just die out? And I think that question could be viewed both in terms of uh, ethnicity and in terms of nationality. What are your thoughts there? I think there definitely are. If you don't believe the Italians are ever going to recover from a, a well below replacement level fertility rate, then why would there be any Italians, more than a few thousand or tens of thousands? And you know, you can do the maths of each 
cohort halves. And I've got I've got a chart in the book, I think, about five-year-olds in Italy. I think they get, they, they'll be about a third of their peak level before very long. Um, and there are lots of ethnicities and nationalities in the past that have, for one reason or other, died out. I mean, we don't talk about the Medes anymore or the Goths. So we shouldn't be surprised if in 500 years' time, they're not talking about the Italians or the Koreans. I mean, it really is down to ethnic groups and to nationalities, to nations, to groups collectively. If just as if an individual wants descendants, he or she must have children. So if a a community or a ethnicity or a national group wishes to persist, it must have children. The only other model, of course, is a very effective assimilation. Uh, but but we know that's a very complex process. It's not very easy to manage. And if Italy in 500 years were inhabited by people who are not descended from today's Italians, who knows how they will identify what language they will speak and what religion they will practice, and therefore in any meaningful case, whether they will be Italian. It's, it's, it's worth saying the Sicilians were probably the masters of assimilation. So that that's maybe a model. Um, what about the, okay, we have a question here. Uh, from someone who says, well, are people who don't have large families selfish? Well, in the book, just to simplify things, when I talk about this choice, this trilemma, as I call it, I use the word egoism. So you, you, you can be egoistic by having a small family. You can have an economic uh, buoyant economy and you can have ethnic continuity. So they're the three E's. You can have two, but not all three of those. And that's how I sort of frame that uh, trilemma in the book. I don't really want to say they're selfish. I mean, I, I, I think Again, I'm trying to point out the consequences rather than to preach at people. And as part of the book, I, I, I went out for coffee with a couple of friends of mine. Um, you know, the, 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 the stereotype is more as women get more educated, they have smaller families. So I went out for a cup of coffee with one friend of mine who's a Cambridge graduate with six children and another one who's an Oxford graduate with seven. And, and one of them said, actually, maybe I've been selfish because I love having children. And that's what I like to do. Um, so I think, although even, although I admit I use the word egoism to fit neatly in this trilemma, I think that's too judgmental. And I try not to be judgmental, but simply to point out what the consequences. First of all, what, what are the facts? What's going on? And secondly, what are the consequences of those facts? Yeah, unfortunately, people in the questions want you to be judgmental, Paul. So they're trying to draw you up. I, I, and that Given in that sort of um, vein, I think in that vein, we've got a question here from Ahmed who writes, uh, given that immigration from the poorer to the richer parts of the world is inevitable, shouldn't we be considering how best to manage diversity rather than encouraging women in the West to have more babies? Thoughts on well, that? I don't believe anything's inevitable, actually. I mean, in my lifetime, the two things I've most often heard were inevitable. And, and people probably, first of all, Irish unification, it's inevitable. And, you know, the vast majority of people, it's still a big majority in Northern Ireland, don't want it. And I'm not sure it is inevitable, although it's more likely post-Brexit than it was. And the other thing I remember hearing a lot in the early Blair years was Britain joining the euro is inevitable. Well, you'll struggle to find people who believe that now. And I think, Eric, a point you've made to me in the past is a country like Singapore, surrounded by very, very poor mass, very, very large population in Indonesia that's quite poor and the Malaysian population also is nothing like the per capita GDP of Singapore. And there's tiny, tiny Singapore. They don't have illegal immigration. I think uh, they choose what immigration they want, they manage it, and they control it. I don't think there's anything inevitable about it. Likewise, one might have said in the 1960s or 70s, um, there's China with this massive population and very, very poor. 
they're all going to come to Europe, clearly, aren't they? Well, no, they're not. Um, the poor world can get rich. Uh, the rich world can change its fertility. The rich world can get poor. The rich world can choose to have immigration. I think I think well, once we get into the world of inevitability and the loss of choice, uh, I, I think it's quite dangerous. I think it's important to have debates about these things, to come to decisions democratically and to implement them and not assume that, that things are inevitable. And if, if, a, if a country or society said we do want mass immigration, we don't care about ethnic continuity, we do believe in integrating or even not integrating communities and having a very diverse uh, society, I think that is down to societies to make those choices and decisions. I think talking about inevitability is, is just not helpful. Okay, and and, and um, now sort of shifting gears a little bit, uh, Sachiko talks about history and the question of how has population size affected the course of history? Uh, a big question there. So I'd say read The Human Tide. That's my last book, which has been <laughs> out in paperback for quite a long time. Um, all other things be equal, having a big gang, uh, having a big army, having a large population to man the factories that produce the armaments has helped you. And I think that is the general rule in history, and it's the exceptions. Again, it's a bit like Ukraine and Russia, because we are in Europe, we focus on that as a conflict. But I think it's the exceptions, like you know, certain victories of Alexander the Great over the Persians. You know, There are times in history where the numbers are trump, but all other things be equal. If you have more people, you certainly have the potential to have a bigger, bigger economy, to produce more armaments, and to man a larger army in the field. So it's no surprise that, for example, in the 1830s, de Tocqueville in the United States, traveling around, said there are two countries that are going to be superpowers, he didn't use that word, in 100 or 150 years' time. They are America and Russia, because they have such enormous capacity to support populations. And indeed, that is why America and Russia did surpass uh, the, the, the traditional uh, great powers of Europe. So all other things being equal, a big population is a major help to be an economic and uh, political and military power, without a doubt. Okay, and, and um, sorry to keep rapid firing at you, Paul, but we we have a question here, which which I guess touches on a, what we were talking about a little earlier about ethnic change arising as a result of differential ethnic population growth. And the question here is, uh, why do we care what the ethnic makeup of the world looks like in 500 to 1,000 years? Um, and it's an interesting time scale. I mean, I don't know if you've seen that figure for 300 million Amish in the 2200s, so that's maybe 200 years away. Uh, why do why then would we care what the ethnic makeup of the world or particular countries would be like in 500 to a thousand years. Well, there's a question about why, a philosophical question, perhaps, about why we care about anything after we die. And I was having a discussion with a friend, and we were talking about a related subject. And he said, Well, I will be dead by then. And I don't care. Once I die, once I no longer have consciousness, I don't care. Uh, I think 500 years is not a helpful time frame because there is so much <laughs> uncertainty. So we might as well ask, Why would we care what it will be like in 100 years' time? And again, what I'm trying to do is lay out the facts, what it will look like, uh, what the trends are, and people can choose to say whether it matters or not. I think it does matter in terms of, uh, you know, will there be Italians or won't there be Italians? That will play into the world and will it will affect the way the world is. Whether that you know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, uh, you know, it's another matter. But I think 
uh, the relative weight of Africa will significantly change the world. Um, and we should know about it. Um, we should know about its effects. I was just going to suggest Anthony Smith, who was my supervisor, who we both knew very well, uh, made an argument that nations, ethnic groups, like religion, they all uh, speak to this notion of continuity after death, and, and that that has a sort of, if you if you believe that that has a sort of evolutionary basis, that might be one reason why uh, people care about it uh, or well, have I cared. Think there about are it. people, there are individuals who care very passionately and strongly about their continuity, uh, the continuity of their ethnic group or religious group. Um, or nation, and there are people who totally don't, and I think there are patterns of that. And I'm not sure whether one is normal and natural, and the other is not. Um, I think it's quite an individual thing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. There's different different degrees to which people are attached to these things. And, and again, I hate to be boring, but I'm not actually that interested in making a judgment about that. I mean, I am interested <laughs> in observing it, and I am interested in saying if you care, and the current trends continue, here's what will happen. Great. And uh, in any case, I think we are nearing the end of our session here. And I just wanted to uh, say very, you know, very much say thanks to Paul. I think it's been a, a fascinating discussion. We've covered uh, all, you know, most of the sort of bases here, I think, in terms of, uh, you know, ethnic change, population aging, the role of population in history. Your new book, uh, Tomorrow's People, is, is available. I very much recommend it, of course. Uh, I think it's incredibly readable and well worth the purchase price. So please do get a copy of Paul's new book if you haven't got one uh, already. Uh, thanks very much uh, to everybody for, for attending and for your excellent questions. Thanks, Paul, as well. Uh, and thanks to Intelligence Squared for allowing us to have this very uh, important discussion. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.